Greetings and salutations, one and all. Jeffrey Wheatman here. Welcome to another episode of Risk and Reels, where we talk about movies. And if we have time, maybe we'll talk about some cybersecurity. I am honored today to have as my guest, Patrick Garrity. Uh, Patrick is a security researcher and VP of marketing at Nucleus Security. Uh, Patrick, say hello. And then I'm going to share with everyone how you and I met, because I think this is the power of virtual networking right here. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Jeffrey. It's uh, great to join. All right. So um, for those of you that are on LinkedIn, you probably have seen Patrick. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the work that they've done, done at Nucleus, but I sort of stumbled across Patrick. I reached out and I said, hey, I got a podcast. I'd love to have you on. We passed each other like running down the hall at Black Hat back in, uh, in August. You were actually walking with uh, CISA director Jen Easterly, who also loves the, the stuff that you've done. And, it, you know, it's, um, I love the fact that we can meet people this way, right? You know, you used to have to go places. Now I don't ever have to leave my house, which I'm an introvert. I actually prefer, prefer to do that. So Patrick, why don't, you, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey? We had a little bit of a pre-chat. You have kind of an interesting role, right? Being director of research uh, and VP of marketing, which seems like they wouldn't be in the same, in the same body. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I have a long history of helping build cybersecurity companies uh, and predominantly on go-to-market. So think of things like building products, sales engineering, uh, sales, uh, international expansion, marketing, kind of a ton of different things, right? And um, I, I did that at Duo Security. I helped spin Census out of the University of Michigan, who uh, today just raised their round of funding. So that's exciting to hear. Um Went on to do that for a company called Blue Mira uh, in the uh, detection and response uh, space and then came to Nucleus Security. And sometimes at these startups, it's like, hey, what role do you have that I can enter in? Like, this is an exciting opportunity. Like, let me just get on the bus and I'll crank on whatever. Uh, and, you know, I think coming here, taking on a BP marketing role for the first time, like the first thing I asked myself is, how do I ask, add the most possible value to the ecosystem of, of security in organizations and companies? Um, and how do I help them, you know, understand the complexities of uh, things like vulnerabilities and exploitation? So that kind of led me to this theory of like, how do I really create value in an ecosystem so people can understand the problem space uh, and what actions they can take and things they can do? And, and that led me to literally just spending uh, hours upon hours, weeks upon weeks of just digging into vulnerability data um, and trying to understand it myself. Um, and that, that essentially was like the foundation to me starting to build out all these uh, data visualizations. So it's, that's interesting because one of the things that we see a lot of these days is that there, there seems to be a problem in the labor market, right? Um, security people say they're, they can't get jobs and companies say they can't hire people. And I think you're, you're a great example of someone who basically just, kind of sat down and started doing some research and and have done some really cool stuff. And we'll talk about that shortly. So as everyone knows, the the first thing we do on Risk and Reels is we talk about movies. So let me think of a question for Patrick. Okay, I got one. So what movie have you seen where the main character is positive they know what's going on and they could not be more wrong? Yeah, so I think it's interesting. Well, you know, one of the movies I've I've seen more recently, self-admittedly, I probably should have watched a long time ago, is Sneakers. 
Um, and I think the instance of like, you know, watching and witnessing the group, right, uh, thinking that they're working with the government when in reality, uh, I think they're working with some Russian spies uh, or a spy agency of some sort. Um, and it's all it seems all too familiar to some of the more recent news of like IT workers from North Korea. Um, but but I think this is a very common uh, common type of thing that that happens uh you know often so I, I you know i'd say sneakers all right i i love sneakers and uh i think i'm a, more than a few years older than you sneakers was actually one of the movies that got me into security in the first place um sneakers of course hackers right which is super cheesy and then the book cuckoo's egg those were those were the three things that sort of made me want to be a security a security person so all right. Awesome. So if you, for those of you out there have not watched sneakers, you got to go watch it. Uh, Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, uh, and then a couple of people you will recognize from other movies, but it's a great, great Dan, story. Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Dan, Dan that's Aykroyd. right. Yes, that's right. Right. Dan Aykroyd's character's name is Mother, which makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, all right. So, so for me, so I'm going to, I'm going to actually use an answer that I have used on a previous episode for an entirely different question, which is Forrest Gump. Right. Um, Forrest seems to keep stumbling into these situations where he thinks he knows what's going on. He is frequently wrong and yet he still comes out on top. And I think that's a, I just think that's a cool story because he, you know, he starts running by mistake. He starts playing ping pong by mistake. He becomes a shrimpo captain by mistake. He always feels like he's doing something and it ends up, he's not necessarily doing the things he thinks, but he's still wildly successful. And I, I, uh, I, that is still one of my, one of my favorite movies. All right. So that actually brings me to, to the topic we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to let you talk about the, the work you've been doing but I think that drawing a parallel of people thinking they know what's going on and in fact not always being uh, correct, I think it plays in there, right? People see all of these attacks out there, right? All these vulnerabilities, all these, you know, zero, zero day. There was a, a big thing going around the other day about um, a secure messaging platform. Shh, there's a zero day. And no one seemed to know what it was. It never came out. No one ever did anything with it. And the company came out and said, nope, not true. Now we don't know, right? Was it true? We just, we don't know. And I think the, the work that you have done, first of all, I love the data visualization stuff, but I think the work you have done in analyzing, you know, yes, there are millions of vulnerabilities, but do we actually have to be worried about all of them is super interesting. Right, because if you, as a CISO or a security engineer or whoever, have to worry about a million vulnerabilities, you're never going to be successful. Right. So maybe, maybe Patrick, share a little bit about sort of how you got to the conclusion you got to, and then talk a little bit about about the visualizations. And what I'll do is, when this goes live, uh, I will uh, post it on LinkedIn. And I'll actually post some of your visualizations in the in the comments with some links so people can check out. Because uh, I think what you guys are doing is super cool. So talk about sort of how did you how did you stumble into this? Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned Forrest Gump a second ago, and that's kind of my life. I actually have a, a Life's Like a Box of Chocolates um, a painting on my wall, but it's actually Mother Teresa, or I'm sorry, um, it's in front of the Taj Mahal, and it's Forrest Gump sitting on the bench with um, Princess Diana uh, with a box of chocolates, which is pretty cool. Um, and I say that because, like, the, the, the reality is, you know, I didn't say, hey, I'm going to become a security researcher. 
I think over the years, continually, I come into companies and, and you know, just say, hey, I'm going to take on a role and I'm going to help with whatever I can. And the question is, you know, whatever role that is, how can I add the most value? Um, and so really uh, looking at vulnerability data and research, I have a long history within, you know, different security tools, Duo with MFA, Census with Attack Surface Management, um, and then uh, Blue Mira detection and response, you know, sim-like capabilities, but never did I spend a ton of time on vulnerabilities. Um, and so I think the first thing I always look at when I join a company is how can I intimately understand the problem? And there, there's some huge seismic market shifts that happened um, in, in the last couple of years, like very, very fast. And, you know, most attacks, according to like Mandy and M-Trans, 2022 and before were all phishing attacks. Almost everything initial attack vector was phishing. There's some exploitation out there, but it wasn't really until the last, you know, two or three years where we started to see mass scanning and exploitation, right? Um, and, and so I think like, you know, just understanding there was some sort of dynamic there. And if you look at the 2023 trends report with Mandiant, it states, hey, number one initial attack vector is exploitation. So, you know, for me, it's, it's really just trying to intimately understand like what, it, what is going on? Why are people screaming about zero day vulnerabilities uh, exploits in, in vulnerabilities. And for me, that's looking at the actual data. So, you know, first observation I discovered or found was, Hey, that this thing called the NVD, the national vulnerability database uh, has, I think at the time it might've been like 180,000 volumes and it's adding every quarter by like 20,000 or 25,000. Like that's just a, a big number like seismic increases. And that's a good thing. People are disclosing vulnerabilities on their software, right? So um, you have to start asking the question of like why this is. And I think beyond that, then it was like, oh, interesting. There's this new thing called Sisakev. Um, I think a year year ago, it came out in 2021, but a year ago, not many people even knew Sisakev existed other than federal agencies that had to comply with it. Um, and so same thing, like, Oh, what gets so Patrick for the for those for the folks out there that don't know what that is, what is it? Yeah, so cyber the uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency CISA, uh, who is under the Department of Homeland Security, essentially was handed a bi-directional operative by the White House saying any federal agency that is within the uh, oh I should know sorry the civilian side has to comply with this and they have to remediate any externally vulner vulnerabilities that we know are exploited and have a fix. So there has to be a patch or mitigation. So that's one of the first times where you have like a, a reputable source providing public evidence of uh, exploit exploits and exploitation in the wild. Um, and so that's a really important thing where you can start to say, okay, th these things are more important than others. And we might want to look at them a little bit more closely um, and fix and, and remediate them, um, which is a pretty good tool. Okay. So, so, you, so you said a couple of things, and I just want to kind of go back because I think they're, they're important. So you mentioned the shift away from, from fishing and farming and all those things to exploits. I would have to imagine if you went to the average security person out there, they probably thought it was exploits all along, right? Because that's oh, what yeah. we do. Yeah. 
Well, and that's what, like, it's, it's sexy. Like, it's exciting to talk about exploitation. Everyone is exhausted by the basics of, like, MFA um, or RDP or, you know, like, uh, types of attacks. And so I think, like, certain things are talked about all the time. But in reality, like, there's an aspect of what's actually going on. And so exploits were very sensationalized for a long time. And they, they at times, have had wide impact. But that's not typically how most attackers were getting into environments at scale until more recently, right? Um, so that, you know, and frankly, it's because credential compromise is a lot easier, uh, especially when there's not MFA or hardened credentials in place uh, to get access to systems. Okay. Yeah. I always, the, the phrase that I use and I did steal it from a manager a bunch of years ago. So if he's listening, sorry, uh, but I, I, you know, I say like, why, why would you try to steal a car driving down the highway going 80 miles an hour when you can go to a parking lot and have your pick, right? So yeah. going sort of where, where the stuff is, I think is, is where we get going. Um, and then, and then one of the things, so you said that, that we're seeing people revealing vulnerabilities is that the community, our community, or is that the vendors? And what do you think the driver is for that? Because most software companies, they don't want to talk about what they have, right? They don't want it out there. So who is it that's well, pushed that that sort of open disclosure? Well, I think first off, like, yeah, there, there was always an interest in security companies talking about the latest and greatest zero day or other things because like, there's an aspect of incentive and interest. Like how can I get people's interest to read, read our stuff um, or follow along? And so like, yeah, the latest, greatest exploit, like most people were using Twitter or other sources until more recently, I think to understand like what's the latest, greatest, you know, new vulnerability that I should be concerned about, but that doesn't really scale. Right. Um, and so for me, I think like, how do we look at these things and deduct that down like themes of what's going on and what's actually happening? Um, and that that's where even like going back to the data visualization side is like, for me, it's really difficult to read a 270,000, um, uh, you know, row Excel sheet of vulnerabilities. So like, how oh, come on, how hard could that be? 270,000 vulns and put it into a picture so you can make something uh, sense of, of the data itself. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, tying it back to the data visualizations. A lot of what my work comes from is like, how do we distill down a 200 page report down to a single page? How do we take lots of phone data and deduct it down into what people actually should think about or matters? Um, and then how do we take the things that matter and even simplify those concepts down to help people understand, you know, what basic security practices they can put in place that are going to re really move the needle? Because um, that's the, the state at which we're at right now. Right. Okay. So a couple of things I just want to ask on that. So the first thing, so in my previous role, I did a lot of coaching with CISOs going in front of boards, going in front of non-IT executives. And there, there tends to be a struggle, right? There's, there's a disconnect. Um, to my mind, the power of a lot of the visualizations that you have come up with is that you can take that and go to an executive and sort of show that to them. Are you hearing that from, from your customers and users that they're having a lot of success getting this to resonate with business people? Yes. Like, and that's a lot of the intention was like, okay, 
how do we help educate people and draw attention even that are not in the security industry, right? That maybe might be a board member. Um, you know, they might be a CEO. Uh, they might be in a different role. And if you look at like the the Kev um, piece of artwork that I dropped um, during Black Hat, right? Uh, that was covering, you know, systems known exploitable vulnerabilities. The, the power of that visualization is the fact that you can give that visualization in a PowerPoint to the board and say, hey, look, you know all these companies, right? We have all of them in our environment, Apple, Google, Microsoft. Maybe Microsoft's a bit bigger than everyone else, but there's reason behind that. We don't want to shame the vendors for it, but we have all these technologies in our environment, right? Yes, we do. Very agreed upon thing. Okay. This is CISA, the security agency of the U.S. government under Department of Homeland Security's list of vendors that have exploitable products. So, uh, you know, does that help you understand that, like, everything within our environment technology-wise is pretty much at risk? Uh, there's work that needs to get done in order for us to mitigate and fix these things. Oh, and by the way, that's the only things that are known and have fixes. There, there's 270,000 other vulnerabilities out there. So, you know, that that's really the power of deducting it down to something that simple. Um, and I think, you know, there's people that appreciate that. And there's other people that maybe are like, that's super simple and basic. It, it is. But that's actually what a lot of people need, especially, you know, if they're not on the security side or they don't have a good understanding of security. They just need, you know, basic concepts to understand the, that these risks exist. Right. And I, I love I love that the sort of way you just articulated it, because I think it is important to um, to make sure that our business executives understand that that the technology, even though it's not their issue, supports all of their business goals. Right. And and I think that, you know, again, I'm not going to badmouth vendors either, but I do think sometimes they have a tendency to understate the impact or the potential impact of exposures, right? And you understand why that's, you know, spin control, uh, et cetera. Um, are you, are you seeing anyone use this data within sort of like an extended ecosystem, right? So people can look at themselves, but they also do business with other companies, right? They have partners, digital and physical, they have suppliers, they have vendors. And I think being able to understand what their potential risk exposure, right? So, you know, you have what we do, right? You know, third-party risk intelligence, but there's attack surface management, there's exposure management, there's threat intel, and all of these things come together. And it seems like what you're doing sort of hits all of those things, at least at a, to a certain extent, right? Are you seeing yeah. people take that data and expand the usage? Oh, yeah, I think there's always a desire to expand. And, and you know, for context, we're, you know, I work for Nucleus and we're in the vulnerability management space. And, you know, vulnerability management is not just a network scanner anymore. And I think that's the, the one of the things, perceptions that's changed very quickly is you have vulnerability and asset data spread across your enterprise. And you're getting visibility through 10, 20, 50 different tools, right? Um, and so that's really one of the biggest challenges is like, how do I even understand my risk if I don't have a, a centralized place of knowing what my assets are, what my vulnerabilities are, and then what the actual threat is to those things, uh, which is where the, the Intel piece comes into play. And then what you're talking about is other components like third party risk, right? 
how do I how do I take you know third party assessments or third party risk and consider that and factor that and how do I take human risk factors? How do I take compliance um, into factor that I have to comply with? So there's just such a large gamut of data that ties back to, to vulnerabilities and exploitation um, and the underlying assets they're associated with that it's like a very, very hairy and big problem to, to solve. Right. And so you use the word data and I'm, I'm a bit of a stickler around words like data and information and intelligence. So to me, data is ones and zeros, right? There's no value there. Information is what you do when you apply a business context. And then intelligence is what do you do with that information? So you guys are essentially running the gamut from collecting all that data, that raw material, right? And then you're assessing it and analyzing it, and then you're presenting it in such a way to guide people. Here are the areas where you should be focusing. And here are the areas that are very loud, but not really very risky or very dangerous. Yeah, and I think one of the things to highlight is like we're not we're not in the business of discovery, right? So like you're right. gonna still need a network scanner, an application scanner, all these tools. But yes, aggregating all of that and then correlating that, like that's where I'm talking about um, information and data. Like, how do we get a single set of assets and vulnerabilities and then apply threat intelligence to that? So I'm not constantly playing whack a mole with the same vulnerability in 20 different places um, and constantly coming back up. Like one of the big things in vulnerability management that I think about is like exceptions handling. Like you can't fix this vulnerability. This vulnerability was detected and it doesn't actually exist. Like these things happen all the time. And so you need, you need good practices and processes to be able to handle that. So you're not continually duplicating the same work over and over again, because like, the scanner doesn't tell you that that thing isn't a real thing. Um, and that's kind of the reality is, is like a lot of these loan management teams are literally just sitting there playing whack-a-mole on spreadsheets all day long. Um, so how do you, how do you help make that work more productive and efficient? Um, but, you know, through uh, the information that's available uh, and he helping them, you know, streamline to, to what, what should actually be worked on and fixed. Right. And, and again, I think that's, that's a really, really important thing. I, I, when I used to advise CISOs in my past role, I used to tell people, look, you got a thousand servers, you're never going to be able to patch a thousand servers properly. But what if you focus on 50 and then you hone your process and then yep. you can go to a hundred and then you can go to 500. Maybe you never get to the full thousand, but as you work on these scalable, repeatable behavioral patterns, I think it, it gets there. And I, I, I like, I like what you're talking about. So. When you did your first data viz, anything jump out that surprised you? Like anything that you expected to have a high representation that didn't or something that you didn't think was going to be anything and turned out to be a big box? Well, like the, the first one that kind of went like semi-viral, it wasn't that viral, but to me at the time, it was like a lot of impressions, right? On LinkedIn was a Sankey-Matic uh, chart that I used. And there, were, there was a, there's a guy in... Um, Netherlands, uh, Ingmar, um, who I've made friends with, who made a similar Sankey-Matic of CVEs. And I just took, I was like, I want to take the 420 CVSS scores of 10s on CVSS version 3.1. And I want to look at their um, predicted uh, exploit prediction scoring system. Like what is their EPSS score? 
And that that's a, a you know, CVSS common vulnerability scoring system is like a base score that's done via metrics of a vulnerability. EPSS is actually looking at uh, different data uh, and information sets in doing machine learning to, to predict whether a vulnerability is likely to be exploited in the next 30 days. So when I created that, like it was pretty clear uh, that it's like, wow, a lot of these CVSS 10s, most of them don't even have any indication that there's exploitation. So, you know, I think like looking at how people have done this, the CVSS base scoring is the most widely adopted scoring system in the world. We have compliance standards based on it. So like for me right away, it was pretty clear, like, okay, something is not right here. We're using a scoring system that is not effective um, on its own. Like, I think there's a lot of hope for it with enrichment and some of the new things that they're doing in version four, but like that desire to like, okay, what are the things that are out there? Like EPSS, CIS's known exploited vulnerabilities list, commercial threat intelligence, right? That can help solve the actual problem of what things to actually fix uh, that are going to be, you know, exploited or are being exploited uh, in the wild. And then I think like from there, exploring a bit, you know, that was at RSA. And at the same time, you know, this guy, Ben, reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, there's a Scientia group that all they do is Vuln stuff. You should connect with them. So I connect up with Jay Jacobs. Um, and yeah, they do. Uh, they do. They do a lot of reports. They're referenced in a lot of vendor reports for for the work. Yeah, and Wade. Yeah, and Wade over there started and founded the Verizon DBIR, and like we use the DBIR at Duo because it's like uh, credential compromise, credential compromise, credential. Com- so I read that thing every <laughs> right. year, like every right. detail. Send it to thousands of people. So it's like. Oh wow! I didn't even know who you were. This is great. Um, so I think like collaborating and, and networking with other people in the space is a great way to learn. And then you know, kind of just jointly collaborating through EPSS special interest group and some other projects, like just reiterating and learning that like, wow, these visualizations can really help educate people in the market on like what's useful, how you know what approaches that you can take. And then spending a ton of time, like similar to you, talking with CISOs, directors of cybersecurity vulnerability management teams, and like the problems that they're facing. Because like, if you think prioritization is their number one problem, it's not. Like the problem is getting alignment across an organization, like getting visibility into all their assets and all their data. Like there, there's so many problems that they're faced with in order to get a, a um, handle over vulnerability management. Um, but you have to start somewhere. So like, as you mentioned, you know, starting small, similar to what I did on the database side, but like on the vulnerability management side, it's like, start with what you have visibility into. Start with something small, like Sisakev, a thousand vulnerabilities on a list that are known to be exploited. Don't try and boil the ocean. Start with external facing assets and start there and then build your program out from there. Um, I think too many times people are trying to like build the latest like quant algorithm that's going to be a silver bullet and they spend so much time on that and they never do the basics. Right. So um, not, not trying to, you know, there are people that are doing risk quantification effectively tied to bone management. It's very few um, <laughs> from, from what I've seen and what my, my experience are, but like start with the fundamentals, start with the basics, start small and in increment similar to what you said. 
uh, and you're, you're going to be a lot more likely to be successful with that approach. So I, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the cyber risk quantification because that's actually a, a, a hobby of mine. And actually, we've done a really good job of integrating that into our third-party risk. We should talk about that uh, on a future conversation. Um, but I, I, think, I think if I just kind of want to pull out, I think a, a summary is you're trying to make the job of the vulnerability management people easier, right? Make it a, a more solvable problem, right? It's the old, like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time kind of thing. And, and I think you, you hit on a problem I think people have, but I don't think they articulate it right. I think they articulate it like we have too much to do, but it's not really that. It's that they're, they don't have enough intelligence to guide where they should be focusing, right? You you get a bang for your buck for an investment of time and energy. Like I always used to tell people, you should not be patching by criticality technical-wise. You should be patching by criticality a business asset. Well, I think that's important, but also it's like, do you have good patch management processes for Windows systems? Do you have good patch management process for network devices? Like start you know, start like, if you don't have good patch management processes, your volume management is going to look awful. I can guarantee that. <laughs> um, so even, you know, even as you're going through, it's like, you need to do some root cause analysis to understand, like, if things are bad, why are they so bad? And can you fix them actually through projects of, of updating an application or a service? I remember one story where, you know, someone essentially was, um, you know, running, older versions of Chrome that still had Flash in their environment. And everyone's like, just update it. Well, they couldn't update it because they had a legacy application. Well, update the legacy application. Now that's a project, but like that will actually move the needle for that organization, that company. Um, so I think it's trying to deduct and figure out like, which things do you go after as well um, so that you can optimize and automate as much of uh, your processes as possible. All right. Awesome. So this has been an interesting conversation to, to say the least, Patrick. It was good to get to know you a little bit. So let me just kind of summarize up a couple of things uh, I heard, and, and then I'll hand it back to you for last thoughts. So first thing, go see Sneakers. It's really, really good. Uh, it's, it's the movie that got me into security and I'm glad Patrick that you enjoyed it. Um, the second thing, and I think this is a big one and was a little bit of a surprise to me, which is that up until fairly recently, exploits were not really the way in, right? It was, it was about compromising the human and the fact that we're seeing more technical things. And I think it, the rise of AI is definitely going to make that worse, um, you know, I, I present on AI all the time at a very high level. And I tell people, look, the bad guys, they're using all the same tools as you and you don't, and they have no ethical or moral boundaries, right? So I think that's a really, really important one. Um, I like the, the, the stuff you said about sort of adding context to CVSS, right? Because you're right, uh, CVSS is something that's been used for a long time. I remember a, a number of years ago, I had a conversation with uh, a CISO, and he told me his risk appetite was no more than an aggregate of 1 million CVSS. So basically, they were adding up all the CVSSs for all the vulnerabilities on all the servers. And as long as it was below a million, they were good. Clearly not the way we should be doing things. So I will not name, I will not name the, the company because it was not a small company. Um, so uh, any final thoughts, Patrick, from you before we send you on your happy afternoon? 
No, it's great. I appreciate you, you, you know, having me on, I think like focus on the basics, um, get alignment with people in regards to like what priorities are, I'd say at a leadership level, as well as across the organization, um, you know, start small and expand and grow. Right. Uh, would be my take from like a approach perspective, really with any project, right? Uh, like don't, don't try and boil the ocean too much. Um, and then, you know, try and keep a, a positive attitude like Forrest Gump. I think if you can, you know, do that can continually with any role, I think it's really going to help. Uh, uh, I think you gotta, you know. I think you gotta love what you do. I'm, I'm involved in a mentorship program. And one of the mentors said that, uh, their mentee said they, they're going into cybersecurity because they thought there was a lot of money. And I go, this is not the field to go in for that. If you don't love it, you are going to be really, really unhappy. So, uh, so I appreciate that. So, all right. Uh, so thanks Patrick for joining everyone. Uh, Patrick Garrity from nuclear security was our guest today. I want to thank him for coming. And again, once this goes up, I'll post links to some of their data viz stuff that they're doing at Nucleus because it's really, really cool uh, stuff. So with that, I want to thank everyone for joining us on today's episode of Risk and Reels. Make sure you subscribe below so you don't miss any of our future guests. we got some really cool guests coming up. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.